This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Yesterday, the Michigan Senate approved bills that would gut Michigan's new minimum wage and paid sick time laws. The very laws, in fact, that legislators enacted earlier this year as a way of heading off ballot initiatives that would have made both measures much more difficult to change. Instead of letting those measures go forward, lawmakers approved them with the express intention of scaling them back once the election was over and the lame duck session began. Earlier this week, in preview of the lame duck session, I used a word to describe this kind of behavior, which is patently unfair to voters, in my estimation. The word I used was chicanery. Chicanery. This is precisely what I was talking and thinking about when I said that word. Chicanery. Joining us now to talk a little more about what is going on in Lansing and whether it is reflective of any reasonable sense of democracy is Zach Gorchow. He's the editor of Gongwer, a state capital news service in Lansing. Zach, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Yeah, so that's my word, chicanery, for all of this. Uh, I think this is the, the exactly the kind of thing that makes lame duck so confounding and such an annoying part of politics and governance in our state. I wonder what word you might use for what we saw yesterday. Well, I, I, one word I, I heard you hear many over the years, you know, politics. I think that's, <laughs> that's a good know, one. Probably a, an apt, uh, apt, apt choice. Um, I mean, I think you laid it out pretty well that you know the, the Republican majorities in the House and Senate decided to adopt these uh, voter-initiated laws uh, in September, um, and you know they had every right to do that under the Constitution, and uh, we're going to find out if they have the right to change them in the same session. The court case, I'm sure, is going to be coming. But, mm-hmm. you know, you could make a pretty good case that if they, they you know, really believed in this and wanted to do this, that they should have immediately followed up, uh, you know, as soon as these laws were enacted in September, prior to the election, with the changes um, that, uh, you know, they shouldn't have been worried about, um, you know, def- if you know, this is good policy, which they, they believe it is good policy. Right. Right. Um, they do uh, that. That they should be able to defend that uh, before voters and and not wait until after the election. Yeah. So remind us what the current laws adopted by the legislature this fall actually do. Okay. So two separate laws. One on the minimum wage would uh, would raise the minimum wage. Will raise the the minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2022, and then uh, maybe even more significantly would raise the tipped minimum wage for tipped workers, which is currently $3.52 an hour, up to the regular minimum wage by 2024 with the wages, both wages adjusting for inflation. Um, that's what that one would do. The, mm-hmm. the paid sick time initiative uh, would allow or would require employers to um, provide one hour of uh, sick time for every 30 hours an employee works with a maximum of 72 hours per year. It would also set forth a number of record-keeping requirements on employers. And and those measures are intended to make sure that people have. Uh, better wages and more sort of, uh, it's not job security, but it is 
this idea of um, of just a, a little more comfort in the in the jobs that they have, uh, and and these are issues that we've seen advocates push for for a really long time in this state. Isn't that right? Sure. The the yeah, the, you've seen attempts really all through the decade to try to get uh, minimum wage and paid sick time on the ballot. Um, in the case of um, minimum wage, the you know Republicans and Democrats had worked out compromises in the past. Uh, to raise the minimum wage, but maybe not go as far as the, uh, the initiated act would have would have provided. Uh, the sick on the sick time side, they had struggled to get the signatures in the past. They hadn't been able to do that until this this cycle when they did. Yeah, and so the the changes that they're making now, what will what will they change about what uh, what passed earlier? Well, the, the minimum wage one in particular is is pretty dramatic. Um, in fact, you could make an argument that that from a worker standpoint, it is going to be weaker than the law that existed before the initiated act was even approved. Um, so, the the change the bill as they as it stands right now, and we should keep in mind this could keep changing mm-hmm. as it moves through the process. Um, would raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour, but not until 2030. Now, the reason that that's pretty significant is it essentially means that it, 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 it's no change really to the current, to, <laughs> okay, I'm going to get messed up doing current and previous. <laughs> it's, it's no change to the way the law existed before the initiated act, in that there was an inflation adjuster provi- provision in there, and if the voter-initiated act had never come along, if you assume inflation is going to be about 2% a year, which is generally what it, you know, it's pretty close to that, you'd be at about $12 an hour anyways by, 12, by 2030. Right. Um, the really big changes are two things. One, they bring back the lower tipped minimum wage. So it's the, minimum, the tip minimum wage would be $4 an hour by 2030. And then the really... A uh, big change, which I think, you know, for the advocates of, of raising the minimum wage would see this as a real kick in the teeth, is they take out the inflation adjuster, which was put in in 2014 as part of a bipartisan compromise. So that means once the wage hits $12 an hour and $4 an hour for, for tipped workers um, by 2030, then it, it doesn't change after that, unless there's another future change in the law. So uh, you you could make a pretty good case that this this is worse than what exists than the 2014 compromise. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned that there is likely to be a challenge if this goes through the process and and gets signed by the governor. There's likely to be a challenge to the to the question of whether the legislature is allowed to do this. Can, can you talk a little more about what that challenge might look like? Sure. So. This really gets into the constitutional weeds, but this is what the the issue is, that this will be the first time that a legislature, since Michigan adopted its current constitution in 1963, has amended a voter-initiated act in the same legislative session. And the advocates of both of these proposals are going to argue that you can't do that, that, that a legislature cannot amend a voter-initiated act that it adopted until a subsequent legislative session, meaning not until 2019. Uh, the problem they're going to have there is there, there doesn't, there's really nothing in the Michigan Constitution that, that prohibits 
the legislature from doing this. I, I, I think you could make a pretty good case that the framers of the Constitution did not intend for this to happen, mm-hmm. um, that the legis- legislature would subvert uh, a law brought before it by the people, um, but there's nothing in there that says they can't. Now, the, the advocates will say that uh, former Attorney General Frank Kelly in 1964 authored an opinion uh, that says you can't change it until the next legislative session, but AG opinions like that are non-binding. Sure. They don't have the force of law. Um, and it ultimately it's going to be, up, I'm going to guess, it's going to be up to the Michigan Supreme Court to decide uh, what, how this should be handled. You know, it, sometimes you can talk about what, what the law should be and, and intent, but, you know, they've got, I think they have a problem the advocates do with with the Constitution. There's nothing that says the legislature can't do this. So it's going to be a tough case to make. They've got a a decent argument, but it's going to be tough. Yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Zach Gorchow. He's the editor of the Gongwar News Service. That's a state capital news service in Lansing. We're talking about the moves afoot in the Capitol right now to undo legislation that raised the minimum wage and uh, implemented some sort of uh, mandatory paid sick time in Michigan. Uh, The legislature passed those laws earlier this year to try to head off citizen initiatives that would have put those into place. Now that the election is over, they're going back and saying, well, we're just going to get rid of those things. We only did them essentially to stop the people from voting on them in the first place. Uh, My word for this kind of behavior is chicanery. Uh, This is the kind of thing we see all too often happen in the lame duck session when legislators no longer fear the wrath of voters and feel like they can do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do, uh, give us a call. Tell us what you think about what's going on in Lansing. Tell us what you think about the minimum wage. What should it be? How how much should it increase every year? Are we a state that wants to get to $15, for instance, uh, per hour uh, minimum wage, which is what a lot of the advocates have been pushing for. Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will work you into the conversation. A little later in the program, we're going to talk with Wendy Block. She is Vice President of Business Advocacy for the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I expect that she will defend this move because the chamber has for a long time resisted uh, increases in the minimum wage and mandatory sick time. Uh, we're going to end the show today talking with a small business owner right here in Detroit, Ben Hall, who is the owner of the Russell Street Deli over in Eastern Market. He's going to be here to talk uh, about um, about paying employees more as a way uh, of encouraging loyalty, as a way of uh, in- encouraging fairness in the workplace. So uh, all hour today, we are talking about the minimum wage and paid sick time. Uh, if you want to join the conversation again, 313-577-1019 is the number. The phones are lighting up already. Let's get to Tom. Tom in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit today. Yeah, good morning. You know, Steve, W.C. Seals would be so proud of you. <laughs> and you know, when you were talking about going into before you got to the words, 
chicanery popped up in my head. And he said, great minds think alike. <laughs> but also, I said, skullduggery also. I like that word, too. <laughs> and, you know, I just think that it is just absolutely ridiculous how, you know, the folks up in Lansing just play the people like we're fools. Okay, and I mean, you know, and you mentioned it, but we knew what the, we knew why they did this because they wanted to. My word here, suppress the vote. Yeah, yeah. Because had because had they not did what they did, I believe more people would have come come to you know come, come to the polls, and and the house very well may have flipped over. Yeah, Tom, uh, I appreciate the call and the comments, um, Zach. I wonder if you could talk about what what we think might have happened if voters had been able to face this question on the ballot. Was it really that Republicans were fearful that they would embrace these measures? Uh, or was there just is there just a reflexive um, opposition to the very idea of raising the minimum wage or, or in implementing mandatory sick time? Well, I think all of the above. Um, yeah, they were very worried. And they probably should have been. I mean, look at what, you know, when we look at what the outcome of the election, there were three proposals on the ballot that all had a uh, Democratic left-leaning bent, um, or at least were favored by Democrats, and all of them passed overwhelmingly. So it's not unreasonable to think both of these proposals would have, would have flown through. Um, and when you look at you know how massive the turnout was, uh, I'm not sure that these two proposals would have added anything to that, mm-hmm. uh, since this was the highest midterm turnout in many, many, many decades. Uh, but I, I think they had very good reason to fear these would pass. And and I guess then the other question is, what what emboldens legislators to do this uh, right in the face of voters? I mean, we're two weeks from the election people's memories aren't that short. Do they really expect that they can get away with this and that uh, voters won't remember this, for instance, two years from now or uh, or try to do something um, in the intervening time? I guess I would disagree. I mean, people's memories are pretty short on this kind of stuff when it comes to politics and, and ballot proposals and, and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, there there's, of the 38 members of the Senate, only one of them is eligible to run for re-election in four years mm-hmm. that are serving right now. And there's going to be, I've lost count of it, but there's more, more, you know, well more than 40 members out of the 110 members of the Michigan House uh, who are leaving after this term, and a whole bunch of them who aren't going to be running for office again beyond that. So, you know, there's a sense that they, they aren't going to have to face the voters again, so... What's the big problem? And, you know, the past uh, evidence shows that memories are short. I mean, every, you know, the one I always come back to is right to work. It was, you know, jammed through in the lame duck session of 2012. And by the time the 2014 elections rolled around, it, it didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Republicans dominated that election. It was a total non-issue. Um, and, you know, come 2020, uh, you know, the central dynamic of that election is going to be the re-election or defeat of President Trump. It's going to be nothing to do with it. I mean, I would say that this is going to have no impact whatsoever, except what if the Democrats or their organizers decide to go out and gather the signatures to put both of these proposals well, into the Constitution? Yes, that was what I was going to And that's where 
there could be an impact. So not an impact on people being defeated for re-election, but the Republicans, I think, are taking a big risk in how far they're going with this, that the, they could wind up with, say, $15 an hour minimum wage and who knows how much paid sick time going into the Constitution, and then there will be nothing they can do about it. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Alyssa in Madison Heights. Alyssa, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Well, you know, this just this topic, you are correct. It is chicanery even more so. Um, this legislature, I think, does not reflect the public. They reflect the business community, and that's their total interest. And I just think it's, you know, it just it's unfair. It's not democratic. And, you know, I... I can't believe they're pulling something like this. They're just, you know, I mean, they're not necessarily criminal. I don't know the law on this so much, but it is like the right to work, like he was talking about, how they pulled that. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Alyssa, I think a lot of people uh, paying attention to this probably feel exactly that same way. You know, the question always is, what can you, what can you do about it? Um, Zach, I wonder if you can talk a little about the likelihood of what will happen after this. Uh, there's still some process that would have to take place. And, of course, the governor would have to sign these these bills into law if they do pass both chambers. Is that likely to happen? He's uh, dodged that question when he's been asked. Um, I would think that he's going to sign what gets put on his desk, given his... Uh, the support he has in the business community, that how much the business community is favoring these changes, um, I would be very surprised if he were to not sign uh, whatever the legislature ends up sending him on this. He may not be so caught up in the particulars, but uh, I'm guessing he'll sign what gets there. Uh, what comes next will be litigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be the, the challenge I mentioned earlier on whether the legislature can amend um, uh, an initiated act in the same legislative session. And then, you know, the organizers who put these proposals together, they're going to have to make a decision. Um, do they go for a constitutional amendment in 2020? And, you know, they're not going to know the outcome of this court case for, you know, probably one to two years, but by the time it makes its way through the Michigan Supreme Court. So they're not going to be able to really wait on making the decision to spend the millions of dollars it'll take to get these back on the ballot in 2020 um, before they know the outcome of the court case. Mm-hmm. And because the turnout was so huge this past election, they're going to have to get a lot more signatures than they did before. Um, you know, they're going to need, you know, probably on the order of 550,000 signatures for each proposal to put them in the Constitution. That That is no easy task. It is not. And, and uh, every that dollar, is a huge task. That's right. And every dollar you raise to try to do that, of course, takes away from your efforts to achieve other things. Uh, Democrats still would like to take control of of the legislature here in the state of Michigan. And of course, they will be trying to defeat President Trump in Michigan, given uh, how important that was to his win in, in 2016. Uh, again, Alyssa, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Kathy in Livonia. Kathy, welcome to Detroit. Hey, today. how are you, Stephen? I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, you know, I manage a nonprofit in Washtenaw County, and I was actually relieved when I heard what the legislature had done to that initiative, because as a nonprofit that I'm dependent on federal funding 
um, and, and a decline in philanthropic giving, I didn't know where I was going to come up with the money to be compliant with the law. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you know, and so do you generally then oppose the idea of raising the minimum wage? Only if the federal government will raise the reimbursement rates that are given to nonprofits. We're out here doing work as a nonprofit, not as a charity. Mm-hmm. So we have to be compliant with all the Department of Labor rules and laws as well. But we can't do that without funding. Hmm. So I'm all in favor of it if it's on both sides of that ledger. Wow. that You know, Kathy, that's something uh, that I hadn't, it's a wrinkle I hadn't heard about, and I'm glad you called and injected that into the conversation. Zach Gorchow, up next, we're going to talk with Wendy Block of the Michigan Chamber. But there's no question that uh, businesses businesses feel really strongly about this in some cases and, and worry that uh, higher minimum wage will cut into profits or maybe close their doors. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is what legislators, you know, Republican legislators are hearing from their allies in the business community, that this is big trouble, and especially from the restaurant sector, areas with tipped workers. I mean, I think uh, one of their, those folks use the word Armageddon to describe what it would mean to go from having a $3.52 per hour wage, which is what the tipped wage is right now, minimum wage is right now, to more than $12. It would, you know, completely change the dynamic. Um, you know, what would it mean as far as tipping? Um, you know, it might be a help to, you know, tipped workers uh, working in restaurants that, that don't charge as much for food, but it could be maybe end up being a substantial pay cut for uh, uh, tipped workers in the, you know, higher-end restaurants. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of fear about that. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Ryan on the east side. Ryan, welcome to Detroit today. Hey, good morning, all. Hi. Um, what, what I wanted to say is this reminds me, a few years back, there was uh, a similar, with two pro- proposals that were very similar on the ballot at the same time. Uh, the, the word was almost identical. One was struck down. One, one uh, actually carried through. Um, but the, the one that was struck down was a little bit more along the lines of what the people wanted. I wanted to have to do with something with emergency management or education or something like that. Um, and it's just, this is one of the flaws of democracy where mm-hmm. you are, you know, you have some people who are allowed to make decisions um, that go against what the people have actually said that they wanted. Mm-hmm. And I, that's, a, that's a big issue for me. Uh, very authoritarian at that point. You know, it's not, you know, the will of the people is the will of the few. Right. Uh, Ryan, I really appreciate you calling in and making reference to that example. Uh, Zach Gorchow, we should sort of fill in some of the, the, the gaps here in the story. Uh, he's talking about the EM referendum situation. That's a little different. Uh, voters did vote to get rid of the emergency manager law, and then legislators came back and passed a different law almost immediately. But it does sort of fall in the same category of the tension that exists between what the people want uh, and can do and can exercise under our Constitution and what the legislature is allowed to do to, to contravene that. And I, I always uh, feel like we're on the uh, the brink of having a discussion about that, right, of, of, about saying we, we need to reconcile some of those tensions. We, we never really seem to get there. No, and, and it's a great point because Michigan's Constitution, when it comes to the power of referendum, which is the, the public's right to 
challenge something passed by the legislature and signed by the governor and to initiate an act like the minimum wage and paid sick time laws is, is really flawed. The, the language is really screwed up, and it's, uh, I don't think it's, the way things have turned out is not at all the way I think they were designed. Um, we could talk about the ability of the legislature to put in, you know, $500 into a bill that it's passing that then immunizes it from referendum. Um, you know, the Michigan Constitution says any bill that has appropriations in it is not subject to referendum. Uh, it was clear the reason that was put in there was to prevent the state budget from being held hostage and, you know, basically government paralyzed uh, by a referendum. But instead, that's sort of been twisted into you can put in a few bucks into any bill to prevent it from being put up for referendum. That was you know, clearly not the intent, but that is the wording of the Constitution. And, and we've talked about, uh, you know, the way that, you know, the Initiated Act, which is designed to be a way for the public to bring a law before the legislature uh, and have it enacted if the governor is an obstacle, um, that, that it's impossible to think that the idea behind that was so that the legislature could then uh, almost immediately thereafter, uh, dramatically uh, change or even gut what was passed. But it, you know, it's possible the constitutional language actually weirdly allows for it. But yet, no, you know, to try to change that language, uh, well, who's going to go and pay the millions of dollars to get the signatures to put that on the ballot? And and nobody wants a constitutional convention. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Zach Gorchow, editor of Gongwer, a state capital news service in Lansing. Thanks very much for joining us on Detroit Today. Oh, great to be here, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Up next, we're going to continue the conversation about what the legislature is up to with minimum wage and paid sick time. We're going to hear from the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, which supports these changes to the minimum wage and paid sick leave laws. Also, don't forget, if you miss any of the show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. You can go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Philip in Royal Oak, John on the east side, and Ron in Celine will get to you next. And if you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking this hour about moves in the legislature to undo legislation that was just passed earlier this year. Uh, legislators, as a way of discouraging Michigan voters from uh, having referendums on minimum wage hikes and mandatory paid sick time, passed laws that actually raised the minimum wage and instituted mandatory sick time. Now they're going back, now that the election is over, and undoing those things. They don't have to face voters anymore, so they figure now they can affect the policy that they want. Uh, we heard uh, earlier from Zach Gorchow, the editor of Gongwer News Service in Lansing, about what is going on. Now we want to talk to one side of the issue. Wendy Block is the vice president of business advocacy for the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. Wendy, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. So talk about why you think these new bills are a positive step in the conversation 
about minimum wage and paid sick leave in Michigan. Yeah, so um, I guess, first of all, I I would somewhat disagree with the uh, term undue because uh, both of these proposals that were passed by the Senate yesterday still keep uh, very much the four corners of those ballot proposals intact in that they guarantee a higher minimum wage and guarantee paid sick leave to Michigan employees. Uh, But really uh, what the legislature did yesterday was work to try to improve those acts. Um, the Both proposals as written were uh, paid for and circulated by out-of-state special interest groups who have really no understanding or ties to Michigan's workplace or workforce. Uh, and we are extremely concerned that those proposals as written and slated to go into effect in March of next year would have an adverse uh uh, impact on Michigan employers and employees alike. So yeah. uh, we're pleased with the Senate passage. Uh, I think they, again, they, they work to keep uh, the intent very much alive, uh, but also really work to kind of look at these things pragmatically and, and try to find a good middle ground and balance. Okay, so let, let's go back to what you just said there, that, that uh, it doesn't undo what was done before. I think that's a real uh, uh, play on words, maybe is maybe the generous way to describe that. Uh, what, what they did yesterday delays the, the increase to $12 an hour until 2030, uh, which is a lot longer than what was in the bill originally. Uh, also, the old minimum wage law is indexed to inflation and would have reached about $12 an hour by 2030 anyway. Then this bill gets rid of any indexing to inflation, which would be essentially a pay cut for workers each year after 2030. How can you possibly think that's not different from what we had uh, based on what the legislature passed before the election? So it is different, and I'm not suggesting that it is not, but Michigan at 9.25 an hour already has the highest minimum wage rate in the region, has one of the highest minimum wage rates in the country. Going to $12 an hour over four steps is just simply too high, too fast. And the legislature recognizes that and has decided that they're still going to go to $12 an hour uh, and uh get there, but just over a longer period of time. And in fact, getting to $12 an hour uh, quicker than we would under inflationary indexes. If you get out your calculator, you realize that, no, this actually gets people to $12 higher than an inflationary index would. Uh, so uh, we think this is measured. We think it still results in Michigan having one of the highest minimum wage rates in the nation and is, and is appropriate. So, so, uh, I hear what you're saying about the way that that you support the policy outcome here. But again, can you can you defend the behavior? Can you defend the 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 move to cut off this citizen initiative to pass these laws in one form and then waiting until the election is over to go back and Put them, uh, put them in in a very different uh, in, a, in a very different light. I mean, doesn't that seem to you uh, 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 a swindle of voters? I mean, I, that's the best word I can come up with, right? We the legislature well, said we're going to do one thing, waited until the election, and now it's going back and doing something else. Well, first of all, I have to think we have to remember, you know, three hundred thousand people and some change signed these these uh, ballot. Um, ballot 
circulator things, <laughs> sorry, uh, petitions, if you will. Sure. Uh, so, you know, this is hardly subverting the will of voters. Voters did not decide on these issues, and they didn't decide because Michigan's constitution gives the legislature the ability to make these decisions. So well, it's certainly subverting right now, the will the of... What the legislature is doing is following the, the very rules that are set forth in the Constitution. And I think uh, in terms of what this proposal did, it is very extreme. It isn't being pushed by anyone here, you know, out, other than outside interests who wanted to spend a couple million bucks to get mm-hmm. a really extreme proposal on Michigan's ballot. So, yes, but you know, the same constitution some of stuff needs to be cleaned up, yeah. but uh, okay, right but the now, same, this is the rules of the game. Okay, but the same constitution that, that you say def, that protects what the legislature is doing also protects the rights of citizens to, to have these ballot initiatives with 300,000 signatures, the, the percentage that you have to have of the last election. So how can you, how can you uh, uh, not defend that but then defend what the legislature is doing. The Constitution can't sort of pick and choose which but parts. But the Constitution also gives the legislature to write laws, to enact laws for the state. So if we want to move to just doing everything via petition signature, then we should do that and just say we'll get rid of the legislature altogether. So I think we're we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this yeah. one. But it just seems to me that um, you know, kind of attacking the legislature for what they've done is, is misplaced because and you don't is- see anything dishonest about this at all. Listen, I think the legislature was very honest back in September when they adopted these ballot proposals and saying, look, you know, we agree with kind of the the intent behind these, but the details are wrong. They're too extreme, and we are going to come back and work to fix these things. And unfortunately, the legislative calendar didn't really allow them to do that until this week. And so then why do it in uh, lame duck? Kind of is what it is. Then why do because it in lame duck? Because these things are, are slated to go into effect in early 19. Employers need to be able to plan. I have members that are saying, I've got to update my HR manual. I've got to figure out what my budget looks like for 2019. What's happening with these things? So come January, it's too late. Employers won't be able to adjust any longer. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think we're just... This is realistic. This is real yeah. world. You're I, talking. I guess. I guess philosophical. I guess my problem with what you're saying is is that uh, in addition to to supporting the policy outcome here, you're also uh, supporting the 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 sleight of hand that the legislature has indulged here. And I doubt that you would be doing that if they were doing it uh, on on the other end. For instance, if the legislature had uh, had instituted a lower minimum wage before the election and then came back during lame duck and raised it up to $15 an hour, I think somehow we'd be hearing from the chamber about how that was dishonest and unfair to voters. And I guess that that's that's where I think we we probably diverge from from having uh, I think an honest conversation here. Let's let's yeah, take I, a I agree. You know, yeah. I'm an advocate for my members. I'm yeah. a fierce one. Right. And I'm not going to apologize but, for that. Yeah, but, um, but you're employing a, a double standard. You're employing a double standard when it comes no, to the legislature. No, I, I disagree little, with that. But I would annoying. be fighting against that. I don't think I would be screaming from the rooftops about injustice. Yeah. That's, okay. That's Fair it. enough. Let's 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 go to the phones here. Uh, Ron and Celine. Ron and Celine, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, folks. How are you this morning? Uh huh. Go ahead. Uh, so just referencing, uh, I, I own a restaurant in Saline, and referencing, you know, the minimum wage, say, being pushed to $12 an hour, 
the real person that's going to be hurt in this are the servers that that work, you know, that work currently work for tips. A short example, you know, if they work a seven-hour day, get their $12, there's $84 in their check. In that same seven-hour day, I see servers, you know, with $1,200 in sales taking home north of $250. So that change alone, you know, takes over $150 out of the pocket of the server, and I'll have to raise food prices a little bit to cover, you know, that extra money that they're being paid. Mm -hmm. Uh, The People sitting at the table, you know, if they're not tipping, I imagine tipping goes away. Uh, you know, they won't. They'll notice the cost of their of their meal going up, but they'll realize that oh, now I'm not tipping, so that's a push. But the real people that are going to be impacted are apparently the people that these improvements are trying to help. Hmm. Uh, Ron, I think that's a really nuanced and and honest way to to think about parts of this bill. Uh, that that maybe don't achieve the things that uh, that people thought they would. Uh, I really appreciate your calling and and sharing that with us, uh, Wendy Block. I th- I think he's a good example of exactly what you're talking about, at least from a from a policy point of view. That that some of your members are, are just worried about how all of this will unfold. Exactly, Ron tells a really compelling story. Right, it's about the employees. So. This minimum wage proposal is intended to help the employee, but we know in states where they eliminate the tip credit, like this proposal does, that employees actually see see tips go away and they see their take-home pay decrease. Their income so, goes down. You know, right. the legislature is trying to get at these unintended consequences and actually try to help the employee in a lot of ways. And, and you know, unfortunately, it's not getting character, characterized that way. But Ron cares about his employees, and he realizes, you know, that this this really could have some negative yeah. implications. Well, one of the reasons it's not being characterized that way is because, for instance, Democrats were willing to compromise on this issue and some others when the legislature took this up before. But that wasn't what they wanted to do. What they wanted to do was just head off the citizen uh, petition. And and again, that I think is the thing that that cast this into the the realm of the absurd and of the politically absurd that the legislature really just wanted to circumvent what what the citizens actually wanted uh, again I think we we completely disagree on yeah. this um, again you know the proposals still get us where proponents want us to go and it guarantees mandatory paid sick leave I have a lot of members who are who still don't like this proposal they think it is still too far. And, um, you know, and, and again, we're getting to a $12 minimum wage when we already have the highest minimum wage rate in the region. So, you know, I, honestly, like, I, I think we are on, you know, we're on different planets in in relation to this. But <laughs> yeah, I think um, that's fair. That's fair enough. You know, uh, um, but I, I appreciate you coming on and, and, and sharing your perspective. Uh, thank I think you. it's important to get that side out there as well. All right, Wendy Block, uh, thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Uh, up next, we're going to hear from a small business owner right here in Detroit who is a pretty vocal advocate for raising the minimum wage. We'll hear why next. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm always glad that you have joined us. We're talking this hour about the legislature going back now to redo legislation about minimum wage increases and paid sick time in the state of Michigan. Do you think that is sort of dishonest, given that they passed those laws earlier this year as a way of heading off citizen-inspired initiatives that would have had us vote on those issues in the November elections. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us now to talk a little more about it is a local business owner here in the city of Detroit. Ben Hall is the owner of Russell Street Deli in Detroit, and he's someone who has advocated pretty strongly for a raise in the minimum wage. Ben Hall, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Yeah. So let's start with uh, why you think uh, the minimum wage should be raised. You're a business owner. This would be money that comes out of your pocket. Why do you favor that? Well, not necessarily. Um, The reason I favor it is, first of all, because I think that when we have this conversation, we have to think about equity. Um, uh, a dollar raise for someone who makes ten dollars an hour uh, is might seem like a small raise for someone who makes fifty thousand dollars a year. A dollar an hour is nothing for someone who makes ten dollars an hour. That's a ten percent raise. Ten percent, sure. And I guarantee you, anyone who makes any amount of money would uh, militate towards a ten percent raise <laughs> for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. But as a consequence, particularly with restaurant owners, what you have, first of all, is the fact that the tipped minimum wage is delinked and hasn't moved since 1996 at the federal level. As a, and that was a direct consequence of lobbying from the National Restaurant Association and Herman Cain, um, the same Herman Cain who ran for president <laughs> and had the dubious uh, tax plan. So when I think about it, I think about who he represented at that time, which would be principally Darden, and that would be Olive Garden, uh, Red Lobster, Chili's, places like that. So if you have 500 restaurants and each restaurant has 40 workers on the floor, you go up by a buck, that means $40 an hour per hour that they work, times 40 hours a week, it's $1,600 times 500 restaurants. They have a clear need to invest in disinvestment of their workforce, and also they're not actually involved in their local economies. So for a small business owner, uh, I'm interested in my local economy. So for the people that work with me that work in the, or that live in the King homes, I have an interest in them. Mm -hmm. For the people who have $180,000 in student loans, I have an interest in them. And neither of those people in, in either of those situations is going to do better in their life on tipped minimum wage or the minimum wage or keeping it reduced where it's not even really keeping up with inflation or the universal living wage, which in Detroit is a, was around like 1163 last year and is taking a little jump because of housing prices. Mm-hmm. So uh, talk about how you came to this business philosophy. This is the opposite, for instance, of what we just heard from Wendy Block, who is the vice president president of business advocacy for the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. She's saying, look, uh, businesses can't afford this kind of policy. Why Why are you able to do it differently? Well, respectfully to her, I think the first thing when she's talking about the legislature and 
I, what I essentially see is denial of the will of the people, right? We, we did what needed to be done to get it as a ballot proposal. It was a ballot measure that passed, and now the first thing that they do in lame duck, duck session is overturn it mm-hmm. across part, you know, re- divided exactly on party lines. And that, for me, is an example of, I would say, pushing towards making sure that the, uh, that the business interests overtake the employee interests. Um, as a long-term employee, I've worked at uh, Russell Street since 1996. I didn't buy it until 2007. I didn't really have the opportunity to grow my life in any real way, and I would say that that's also true of my mom, who is a career restaurant worker. Mm-hmm. And the tipped minimum wages that she made in 1996 at Cracker Barrel are the same that they are, I mean, throughout the country. Um, it's, I mean, it's still at 235. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a consequence, what I see is that if you offer someone an entry-level job, that that isn't really a model for growth. And if you keep someone in that place, I mean, I always think about it. I don't go out to eat all that much myself. <laughs> um, but when I do, I think, you know, if I'm going out with my wife for our anniversary or something, that I don't really want to eat a, at a place that I know is, you know, keeping someone in poverty based on their wages. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you think about the minimum wage. Call and tell us what you think about mandatory sick time. The legislature going back now to undo things that it did before the election. Now that the election is over, is that the way to conduct the people's business? Uh, let's go to Kelly in Troy. Kelly, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, thank you. Hey. I need to make... Um Two points. I've worked in retail. I work in the restaurant business. And several years ago, and I won't name the place, um, I was watching people assemble turkey dinners for Thanksgiving. They had the full-blown flu, could not take the day off, let alone the week, because these people have two or three jobs. And they ended up getting, oh, several hundred people violently ill who ate the turkey dinners. And I saw that firsthand, and in retail... And in restaurant business, you are just a body. They treat you like you are a body. Now, some restaurants may treat you well. Most treat you like your disposable merchandise. Yeah. Wow, so, Kelly. But I, I really think that they should have that. But you should bring in a doctor's note. Make it that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kelly, I really appreciate uh, the call and the comment there. I mean, I think that real-world perspective of what this looks like, what this policy looks like in people's lives uh, is really important to, to try to think about. Uh, so I appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to Detroit today. Hi. Um, hey. Yeah, I'm definitely against um, not respecting the will of the people. But um, I just think that, you know, we always hear this argument that um, minimum wage jobs are just for college students, even though we know that a lot of people try to survive on that. But um, we see increases in tuition at universities, and we see increases in um, health care costs. And I would say, at a very minimum, we need to index the, the rate of increases in minimum wage to the cost of college tuition and health care costs. Mm, as opposed to inflation. Exactly. <laughs> That's a really interesting idea. Ben Hall, what do you think of, of, of that approach to it? I mean, there's always that question, could we be doing even more than what's on the table now to make life more livable for the people who work in your restaurant and at other places? 
well, at least relating to the tipped minimum wage in other states where they've overturned it or linked it to the state minimum wage, what you've seen is uh, overall increase in local spending. So what I think, if I think about the Eastern Market or I think about Detroit or I think about Hamtramck, the long-term problems that we have are that entry-level positions don't provide growth. So as a consequence, if someone does want what Robert said, I think is you know something that I've heard before, and every time I hear it, I think, yeah, why aren't we pegging towards that rather than trying to basically keep up with inflation, which is roughly at you know 2% a year or a little bit under that. Now what they're saying is that it's not going to be up to $12 until 2030. Right. So, I mean, I don't know if, if you do the math and you just think about $10 an hour because it's a nice round figure, if you work 40 hours a week and you don't miss a minute of work, you end up with 21 grand a year. And to the earlier point that I think Kelly was making, when she's talking about people who are working two or three jobs, you're, you're basically pegged to that and you need to make sure that you you know, essentially make your nut every week. So if you don't show up on Thanksgiving or the day before for work, you lose wages. And as a consequence, you suffer all the kind of indignities of living at $10 an hour over time. And the only way that you can do that is to increase the time in your week, which of course, you know, not even Bill Gates has figured out how to put more hours in the week. So as a consequence, anyone who, you know, you can only make so much money with two hands, but if it's $10 an hour, then you have to make a certain amount of money to make rent. And I think the consequences that both people outlined are things that when Barbara Ehrenreich wrote Nickel and Dime, I mean, when I first read it, it was one of those things where I think I got 70 pages in, and I was like, well, this is already my life. (laughs) This is already my family's (laughs) life. This isn't something where there's a lot of leverage, partially because what Robert said, where we think of it as minimum wage jobs being for college students, I mean, increasingly they're not. And anybody re-entering the workforce at this time, say, if you, I don't know, worked at the GM plant in Hamtramck, and now you have to find a job, and that job is going to be a $10 an hour job, or it's going to be a restaurant job, then you're not really going to have the ability to grow your family. So if we're talking about a shrinking middle class, and obviously there's a huge problem with that in Detroit and has been historically in the last 30 to 50 years, then what kind of Detroit do we envision in the future? One that has a bunch of restaurants where people you know, are taking the bus for an hour and a half to work a dishwasher job mm-hmm. for nine twenty-five an hour. I, that, I mean, that doesn't really seem like an ethical model to go back to Wendy's earlier point when she's saying that it's a philosophical conversation. I think that it's actually an ethical conversation. Yes. Ben Hall, owner of Russell Street Deli in Detroit. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Of course. Thanks, Stephen. That's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. I'll see you tomorrow.